The following program may contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And all this week, we're doing a series on election night and the pitfalls that TV could fall into as what happens with a pit. And these pitfalls could indeed doom our democracy. That's it. That's all. That's all at stake. Doom our democracy. Or if you're Mike Lee, doom the whatever we're doing here, if not a democracy. So we will be featuring, as today's interview, a talk with AP's Washington Bureau Chief Julie Pace. You might think the AP is a sprawling organization dedicated to news gathering and accuracy. Oh, but you had no idea. So that's all part of the focus of our series, and we're calling it, calling it. Now let us check in to see how branding works on a network TV level, because the big night is election night. Although, as I have been making the case here today, yesterday, tomorrow and the next day, it's not the big night. It's the culmination of a bunch of big nights, and it could be the touch off of other big nights. But TV still needs us to know that election night is for all the marbles, the whole enchilada, the big ball of wax. Only, as we know, the real story is that a big bite of the enchilada has already been consumed. Some of the marbles won't be revealed until after election night, and there are waxy deposits yet to be unearthed. I don't know if the big ball of wax is a good thing or a bad thing. So, let us check in with how the networks do branding around the election. NBC calls theirs Decision 2020. From NBC News, this is Decision 2020. On ABC, you got, well, it looks like they have a couple things going on. They got the Your Voice, Your Vote 2020. Hi, everyone. Thanks for streaming with us on Your Voice, Your Vote, The Breakdown. Or just Election 2020. CNN, America's Choice 2020. CBS, America Decides. Well, shouldn't it be that America has been deciding? And many of us, tens of millions, in fact, have already decided And not Decision 2020, but an ongoing series of decisions, not to nitpick, by which I mean, yeah, to nitpick, but substantively. Because in all seriousness, what branding a thing does is telling us what the important decision makers think of the thing. And as I'll tell you, by our many discussions about calling it, you know, a lot of reflection goes into the branding of the thing. So when you call something Decision 2020 or America Decides, you are, by implication, giving your brand to the idea that this night will be somewhat important, if not all important, and will prove who is the president, if not totally dispositive. And I don't think that these are the accurate titles, Decision and Decides and America's Choice versus Ongoing Choice. I don't think these are the accurate titles for what is actually going on. You know, we've had so many people this week, tomorrow, the next day, the day after that, you will hear from people who are emphasizing different watchwords, not those punchy, definitive, grab you by the throat and pay attention watchwords. Things like transparency, context, patience. These aren't as exciting. These aren't as compelling as the words in the branding. But this year, those things, transparency and patience, not going to drive eyeballs or ratings, but could actually drive the future of our country. Those are the important words this time around. Last year, Fox was America's election headquarters. This year, Fox is going with Democracy 2020. It's in your hands. Fox News, America is watching. I actually think that's the most accurate because this, what we're going to see, this is the state of democracy 
in 2020. Or if you want to satisfy the Mike Lees of the world, this is the state of our republic. And Fox, chief among rivals, will help us render a judgment anew on Ben Franklin's famous dictum when asked about the nature of our government. What is this thing? Is it a monarchy? Is it a republic? Ben Franklin answered, a republic, if you could keep it. On the show today, I spiel about the other political content on TV. All over TV these days, political ads. Not just for sane people anymore. But first, if the networks render a judgment on election night, the Associated Press is like the Supreme Court, or a more idealized version of what we'd like the Supreme Court to be. Careful, wise, judicious, nonpartisan, but also, we have to realize, human. The preparation and pitfalls facing America's premier election decision outlet, the AP, with their Washington bureau chief, Julie Pace, up next. As we have discussed, there is no formal mechanism for the United States to say we have a president. Of course, there are 50 states that vote, and then there is the affirming of the Electoral College. But on election night, or soon thereafter, we have generally defaulted to letting the networks, quote, make the call. But in reality, the gold standard within the media is the AP, the Associated Press. Once the AP makes the call, well, then that's it. The call is made. But as with all standards, this gold standard has changed and has had to change for this election. So joining me now is Julie Pace, who is the Washington bureau chief of the Associated Press. And we are going to talk about how the AP makes the call. Julie, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is before, even before there was an occupant of the White House who was casting doubt on whether there would be an election result. This was something that the AP was taking seriously and tinkering with for a while now. Absolutely. I mean, we have been calling races at the AP since the mid-1800s. And so we've certainly made some tweaks and improvements over the you know decades. But really since the 2016 election is when we started to make some pretty significant changes and, and I would say improvements, you know, in how we are building our tools to call these races. You know, we uh, made a decision after the 2016 election to break away from the traditional exit poll consortium and and start our own election survey, which has really, I think, um, put us in position to get insight into the electorate that will reflect the way that voters are actually going to be voting, a larger percentage of them this time through mail-in and early voting. And so that was something we did before the pandemic, before President Trump started raising his concerns, many of them unfounded, about voter fraud. But I do think it puts us in a really good position this time because, again, our methodology, I think, will reflect more accurately the way that people are going to be voting this cycle. So getting away from the exit polls, was the issue that when you would talk to the people and interview them, that you were only getting the snapshot of the 60% of people who voted in person? Or was it beyond that, that even that snapshot didn't accurately tell you how that 60% of the vote went? Yeah, I mean, I think it was both. I mean, I think it's no secret that we and others have had concerns about the accuracy of the exit polls over the last couple of cycles. You know, that's pretty well known. And the exit polls have had to make some changes, you know, to account for that as well. But I really think that a big driving force of this was that 
we had to start to look at the way that Americans were voting. And even before the pandemic, you know, in election after election, we were seeing a higher percentage of people not voting on election day. So the idea that you were going to use a survey that relied so heavily on people coming out of a polling place on election day and talking to you just didn't seem to match up with where voting in this country was going. And again, that was even before the pandemic. But I do think that now that we are in a situation where we're seeing so much interest in mail-in voting, you know, we feel pretty good about that decision that we made. So one side of exit polls is that you're not interviewing a likely voter or registered voter. You are interviewing a voter. You pull that person out right after she or he gets out of the voting booth. Even with a great survey of people who say they mailed in a vote, isn't there the question, well, did they really mail in the vote? How can we be sure we're talking to a truly representative sample? Sure, absolutely. But I would also say that there are safeguards you know, that we can put in place in that process. We go back to people multiple times on this survey. And the other thing that we can do, which I think is really important that you can't do in exit polls, is we also can capture non-voters. And I think increasingly in these really close elections, it's not just a question of who is voting and who they're voting for. It's also a question of who's choosing to not vote. And this is the first time we're really able to capture that segment of Americans. And, you know, if you look at 2016, again, it wasn't just a story about who showed up and voted for Donald Trump and put him over the edge. It was who didn't show up and vote for Hillary Clinton. And I think it's very possible that in this election, you know, we're going to have a high interest in non-voters as well. And, and we can capture that slice of America in our survey. Right. And reading through your materials or the AP's materials, it does strike me that you're sampling more than even a very good pollster would, who might be able to come out with a national number based on something in the low thousands. But your the AP is interviewing more than 10,000 people in this measure. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look back at when we first rolled out AP VoteCast, it was in the 2018 midterms. This will be the first cycle we've done this on the presidential. But we we were able to do this in many states in the midterms. And what was so cool about the data that we got out was that our sample size was large enough that we could really dig into groups that you don't often have enough information about. You know, for example, coming out of 2018, we had a ton of data on Mormons. You know, Mormons are this really fascinating kind of slice of the electorate, actually, you know, a a religious group and conservative, but also fairly anti-Trump. And we just had a large enough sample that we could have usable data on Mormons. And to me, that's really cool. You know, we have this really diverse country and we tend to talk about the electorate in these traditional blocks, but we leave a lot of blocks out. And I'm excited about our ability coming out of this election to really, I think, dive into the true diversity of this electorate, which you can only do, though, if you have a pretty massive sample size. That is good. I think it's great that the AP has early and accurate information on the depth of the Evan McMullen um, constituency. Fantastic. (laughs) I know that's what people are going to want to (laughs) know out of this election. Right, exactly. What people are going to want to know is who won and when. So you have this let us say, better than exit poll data. You have this sampling data. You went with the University of Chicago's uh, school and you've been using it for a couple of years. But what that gives you is a tool, but not enough of a tool to make the call. So could you take us to the 
portion of uh, your task that is vote tabulation and research. How does that go down? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, vocast will be one tool, but it's by far, you know, not the only tool that we'll be using. So we have a range of resources. You know, we start with a group of analysts and race callers who are real experts in these states. You know, some people have been calling races in these states for for several cycles, and they've been spending the whole year. (laughs) I remember when I called it for Hoover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we have a lot of people who've been around a long time, and it's and we and we draw on them, you know, pretty extensively here. But essentially, what they do is they are waiting to see if enough votes have come in in the right places in those states to give us a margin that we feel comfortable calling that race. And that means that you could end up in a situation where we know that the margin is two points right now, but we've got. of the vote's still out, and it's in those swingy areas of that state, a swingy county. It might mean, though, that if it's a 2% margin and the Democrat is up and all of the vote that is out still is from the most heavily Democratic county in the state, that might put us in position where we're able to to call that race. So it's, it's just a series of data points that we're looking at to make that determination. And and they don't always, you know, cut one way or the other. Right. So a couple things that I want to follow up on what you said. It is the case that the AP will make a call, even if it is mathematically possible for the candidate who you're making the call against to win. The standard isn't if candidate A is leading by 20,000 votes, and if there are 21,000 votes out there, we simply will not make the call. No, you look at those 21,000 votes and say, oh my God, they're from areas that would should heavily favor candidate A, therefore we can make the call. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly situations where Yes, based on raw vote that is still out technically, you know, if the if the trailing candidate captured every single vote that is still out, they could win. But if we know that that vote is from an area that votes 80-20 for the candidate that's ahead, that would probably give us confidence to, to call that race. There are always caveats here. You know, one thing that is always a really big caveat for us is, you know, we pay very close attention to what recanvas and recount rules are in these states. And if we have a margin that is, you know, within that window, we're not going to call a race because we don't want to have the AP race call, you know, be part of that process. We don't want to be used in legal challenges or in, you know, the ways that states are evaluating whether to start that process or not. If the margin is within that window, we're going to let that process go forward before we, we call a race. So again, always caveats, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, we We'd look not just at what the raw tally is, but but where those votes would be coming from. The other thing is I read in your materials, the AP's materials, that you have a rule that you do not call a race if the AP determines that the margin of vote is 0.5%. So you're not going to make the call if you think it's so close that you could be wrong. That is typically our standard. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why we do that is because we only want to call these races once. You know, we don't want to call a race and then say, learn that, you know, there is some change in calculation. I mean, we have had situations where a county can come back and say, Actually, you know, we didn't put this number of votes into the system that we had. 
not because anything nefarious happened there, but, you know, these are human processes, right? And we Mm -hmm. have found that sometimes there are just things that change. And when the margin is that close, we don't want to have gone out and called a race and then have to take that race call back. And that's, I think, really central in this election. We want people to feel really confident that when we call a race, that it is definitive, that you can trust us, that this is not going to change. You're not going to learn something else that happened and we're going to have to reverse that call. But that means that we have to have you know, some level of caution within our race call to allow us to be certain that when we're doing it, that it's right. An implication of that that comes to mind is let us say that there's a candidate. I'm going to acknowledge what we know about the regular voting habits. Let's say a Republican candidate is leading. Republicans tend to vote less by mail-in and more on election day, leading by 0.7, 0.7. So that's not within the 0.5 threshold. But your analysis shows that the mail-in vote could push it down to within 0.5. Maybe not winning, but it could push it down to, you know, 0.4. Is that a race you won't call under those circumstances? Broadly speaking, you know, if we are in a situation where a candidate has a very narrow lead and we know how much vote is still waiting to be counted and it's a fairly sizable amount of vote that is still being counted, that's a really tricky you know, place for us to go out there on a limb and, and call a race. We're going to be cautious and we're going to make sure that we don't call any races inaccurately. That means that maybe we're going to take a little more time or go a little slower on a really close race call. We're probably going to do that. And I think that's okay. Would it surprise you if there is a situation where the networks have a bunch of check marks next to states, we called this one, but the AP doesn't? Maybe four, five, six swing states where other big media organizations with lots of audience have weighed in, but the AP is holding back. I would say if you look, you know, historically, you know, you'll see a lot of examples where we've called races that other outlets haven't called or They've called races that we haven't called yet. We all take a similar approach, but we all have, you know, tweaks around the edges on this stuff. So it's certainly possible that, yeah, they could call some races before we're ready. It's also possible that we'll call races before they're ready. I mean, we were in a situation in 16 where there were some states, individual states, where um, we hadn't called the race yet when some other outlets had, but we ultimately called Wisconsin and then the presidency before others did. Right. So. Sometimes it kind of balances out at the end. We're just going to kind of play our own game. That's that's how we've always done it. You know, we're very clear in our newsroom on election days. You know, we care about the AP race count. That's the one that we control. It's the one that we believe is the gold standard. It's the one, you know, we want to point people to and, and, and make people feel confident in. So far, we've been talking about accuracy and numbers, a very important part of journalism, but an essential part is narrative. So I wanted to ask you about that. What will you as an organization, maybe even you personally, be doing in your explanatory or storytelling capacity to explain to the voters, the audience, Americans, and maybe temper expectations about what election night really means? You know, We have been writing for some time, you know, since the summer, really, stories trying to lay out for people this simple idea that, you know, you might not know the winner on election night, and that does not mean that something has gone wrong. You know, that is just a function of the fact that we're expecting more mail-in vote this year, and some states, including a state like Pennsylvania, which is a really important state, 
isn't going to be able to start counting, you know, those mail-in ballots until pretty darn late. And so that could really slow down that process. And so we've been trying to really just hammer home this idea that it's okay if there's no winner on election night. That's not going to probably mean that there was some kind of widespread fraud here. The other thing, though, that I think you're going to see from us is I think we have to go above and beyond this cycle in explaining the race calls that we are making and explaining the race calls that we're not making. You know, I don't think it's going to be enough anymore in this environment. As much as I think that we are the gold standard, I don't think it's enough in this environment to just say AP has called this race for this candidate or AP is not able to call this race at this time and expect that people will just take us at our word. To what extent are you acknowledging and factoring in the fact that so much information and misinformation is disseminated through social media is some of what the AP's job is now to counteract disinformation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in addition to the team that will be focused on doing, you know, our own proactive explanatory journalism around our race calls, we also have a whole separate team that's going to be focused on exactly this, on misinformation and disinformation, both tracking, you know, that, especially when it relates to our journalism and our race calls, but also just quickly get a handle around other misinformation that is popping up from other corners and trying to step in and counteract that. We don't want to create sort of a void where that misinformation can flourish. Don Rahill, who is director of vocabulation and research for the AP, writes on your website, for more states than ever, we expect election night will become election fortnight. Okay, I like the uh, construction there that kind of rings. But really, two weeks to find out for a lot of states, do you think? Well, look, it depends. I mean, so much of this is really going to come down to the margins. But yeah, I mean, if we're talking about a very close election in a large number of states, particularly states that are relatively new to widespread mail-in voting, and, you know, to layer on top of that, if we're in a situation where we have a lot of legal challenges that are mounting that could affect the vote count and what votes are, you know, being counted, then, yeah, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that you could be in an extended period of time. But I also don't want to rule out the possibility that things could go much faster, you know, if we are mm-hmm. in a situation where it's not necessarily as close as as it has been in past cycles. Well, do you think it's, I mean, express it as a fraction, a percentage, however you want, likely, unlikely, probable, doubtful, that we will know somewhere within 24 hours, we will know by the night of or the daybreak of November 4th, who's going to be president? I think it is possible that we could be in a situation where we know who the winner is going to be on Wednesday morning, but the AP as a race calling operation has not been able to declare that the race is over. You know, if Joe Biden wins Florida, if we're able to call Florida on Tuesday night or in the early hours of Wednesday morning, that cuts off Trump's path, you know, pretty dramatically. And it's, I think, very likely that you would end up in a scenario where we know that Joe Biden is going to be president at that point. But maybe we're still just waiting to call, you know, Pennsylvania, which might, you know, just make it definitive. So we would know the directional, you know, trajectory of this race. But some states that will put him over the top might not have come online yet. And as someone like yourself who is from Buffalo, you must have a lot of just built up animosity over your Lake Erie pals there in Pennsylvania. <laughs> what the hell is going on with Pennsylvania? Why can't they get their I act know. together? <laughs> I know. You know, it's, it's Pennsylvania. It's North Carolina. It's Wisconsin. You know, I don't want to rag on Pennsylvania too much, but... 
I mean, what, one of the things that I think is really remarkable about this cycle is that we have states that are still actively in the process of figuring out how and when they're going to be counting votes. You know, it's really confusing, I think, for voters in those places. It's confusing for us as we try to sort that through. And it just adds, you know, another layer of uncertainty to an election that I think doesn't really need any more uncertainty at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anxiety is not what America is ordering up. Yeah, we'd like we a little more attention. Supply on that is correct. Right that is correct. Julie Pace is the Washington bureau chief for the Associated Press. Thank you so much, Julie. Thanks. That was fun. And now the spiel. One of the downsides of American politics is that the system incentivizes politicians to make one of two types of claims in the boldest, most attention-grabbing way. So one category is the accurate claim about issues that most of the people in your district disagree about. In other words, wedge issues. And what you want to do is if you're the politician, to say to your people, I am on the right side of the wedge and my opponent is on the wrong side of the wedge. This is designed to inspire either Republicans or Democrats to come out and vote. So here is an example of a politician using precious time in the spotlight to highlight a contrast between her and her opponent. The speaker is Martha McSally. She's at a Trump rally in Arizona a few days ago, and here's what she said. Mark Kelly's organization... You know, the radical gun-grabbing organization, they gave California an A grade for their gun control policies. And they gave, and they gave Arizona an F. And that did pump up the MAGA hat-wearing crowd. That's because those people do hate gun control. Of course, one of the reasons why Mark Kelly might not be so enthralled by Arizona's gun laws is that the laxity of said laws almost got his wife assassinated. Mark Kelly's organization is the Giffords Law Center, named for former member of Congress Gabby Giffords, who, as you will recall, was shot in the head by a mentally ill constituent. That constituent did actually kill six people that day, including a nine-year-old. Arizona has no state waiting period, no concealed carry permit requirement, and it allows 30-round clips. Now, if Arizona had tightened any of those laws or all of them, it might have saved the life of the nine-year-old Christina Taylor Green, or the federal judge John Roll or the four others killed or the 13 wounded, including the brain-damaged Gabby Giffords. I mean, it might have. Maybe it only would have saved some of them. Maybe one or two of the enacted restrictions would have only saved one or two people. But you can see why Mark Kelly might not love those lax gun laws that got the crowd fired up. I raise that argument to highlight how American politics works. You have constituencies on both sides of an issue. A candidate says, I support the side you agree with me on. And if the case is compelling, the candidate makes inroads, maybe wins elections. But there's another type of claim that politicians make quite loudly and quite grandly. And it's not just laying claim to a popular position. It's describing your opponent as favoring an unpopular position. The problem is that rational, successful politicians usually don't take highly unpopular positions if they're going to get elected. In fact, if you're talking about someone running for office or in office, it's quite unlikely that they've taken extremely unpopular positions. So what's a politician to do? Well, they are to exaggerate the actual stance of their opponent 
or in some cases, just lie about it. You take a stray statement, something that barely plausibly or just flat out implausibly can be said to describe your opponent's position and run with that over and over again on ads throughout the state. Take Iowa, where Abby Finkenhauer is running for re-election to Congress. Here's what her opponents would like you to know about her stances. Finkenauer supported radical health care schemes that would cost us even more. The Congressional Leadership Fund does give a credit to the claim that Finkenhauer supports a $21 trillion health care scheme. She does not, by the way. And it says, Abby Finkenhauer, a meet and greet from 831-17. Now, that was a year and a half before Finkenhauer first took office in the U.S. House of Representatives. It is on tape. It was on a cell phone video. And here she is talking to constituents about what an ideal health care policy might constitute. She said this. What I see working the best would be Medicare for all. I think that is something we have to get to and make sure that people have access. She added on this cell phone video from three years ago, that's what we have to be working toward. But that's not her policy. That's not her policy now. That wasn't even her policy then. She never voted for anything like that in Congress. But it is highly unpopular with her constituents. So her opponents are going to say, yes, that's what she truly supports. None of this makes politics seem good or attractive or useful to the average person. Either your elected official is going to try to institute this policy you hate, which is a huge turnoff, or they're being lied about by their opponents, which is a huge turnoff. And the lies go both ways. It's not just Democrats who are the victims of them. In Maine, there's an anti-Susan Collins ad that claims she wanted to defund Planned Parenthood. You can criticize Susan Collins for a lot of things, but she literally was one of the two Republican votes to preserve funding for Planned Parenthood. Then there are the even more vague ads, not on policies per se, but on the type of person that a politician is. Liberal Kendra Horn. It's bad enough she votes with Pelosi almost 90% of the time. Even worse, what those votes are doing to Oklahoma. Weirdly, Kendra Horn is the congresswoman from Vermont. No, she is not. She is from Oklahoma. And while she does vote with Pelosi 90% of the time, actually it's 86, it's a stupid comparison since according to the rules of the House of Representatives, the Speaker of the House is not required to vote in ordinary legislative proceedings. She doesn't cast a lot of votes. But it is true, Kendra Horn does agree with Democrats most of the time, but she is also the ninth most conservative Democrat out of 236 in Congress. Yeah, all the Republicans in Oklahoma are more conservative than that, so that is a contrast. The dumbest contrast ads that I know of being played this cycle are meant to sway the good people of Staten Island. Here's incumbent Democrat Max Rose. No matter what she says, Nicole Maliotakis is a fraud, fraud, fraud. Well, you know the Beetlejuice rule. Say it three times, it breathes it into being. Fraud. It has a legal definition. Rose is using a more colloquial one. What he means by fraud is that he just doesn't like Nicole Maliotakis. Can you guess why? It has something to do with the things Nicole Maliotakis said about Rose. He is a liar. He's a liar. He's a f***ing liar. And he's a fraud. Max Rose, no good. Sorry. The last lady is in no way a guma standing next to her maid man who's wearing a large chain around his open neck shirt. Max Rose, guys, a mama Luke. Maron, what am I going to vote for? Friggin' mama Luke over here. Also at issue is who likes Mayor Bill de Blasio less? 
Max Rose says it's him, although Nicole Maliotakis was the Republican nominee for mayor against Bill de Blasio in 2017. And during that race, she tore into him basically every day for months and months and months. But here's the important thing to the voters of New York's 11th congressional district. Bill de Blasio isn't running for Congress. Also, Congress can't do much of anything about Bill de Blasio. And 2021 is Bill de Blasio's last year as mayor. So engaging in this fight makes the politicians look small, except that they are competing for the one district in New York where hatred of Bill de Blasio is a prerequisite for everyone who hasn't decided. Now, let's review who has decided. Voters who say, well, I'm a Republican. Voters who say, well, I'm a Democrat. Voters who say, I'm going to vote for the party of Trump. Voters who say, I'm going to vote against the party of Trump. And some voters who even say, oh, yeah, Max Rose has been there one term. I like him or dislike him. Who's left? A tiny group. People who are really checked out, who don't have convictions strong enough in any of the other four categories that I listed, and are letting it all ride on, well, let's see whoever hates Bill de Blasio the most. And this is what politics seems like to normal people, because the stupidest arguments are the ones being held at the loudest volume. It is a flaw of the system, but in a way, it is the system. Luckily, there are only two more weeks of this, then we could get back to hating Bill de Blasio for reasons pure and not political. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist, as is Margaret Kelly, who he thinks is a giant stinking fraud. Nothing but a two-bit shyster. A real uh, swindler. She's like a bunko man. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, sidesteps those shenanigans. But she would like you to know that not only does she dislike Bill de Blasio, she's not fond of the comptroller, Scott Stringer. And tomorrow on the show, we continue with Calling It. We'll hear from an expert on political science and communication about what some of the pieces of disinformation might sound like. Arizona is one of those states that's mostly mail-in ballots and has been for a while. And on election night in 2018, Martha McSally, who was the Republican candidate for Senate, and she's now an appointed senator on the ballot again, but she was ahead on election night, and then she slowly started losing ground as they start counting. There's only like eight counties in Arizona or something like that, and Maricopa County is Phoenix, and it's a massive county. And as they started counting mail ballots there, she started seeing her lead get cut and cut and cut, and it progressively you know, led to the Democrat winning. You have all these voices on the right screaming about something bad happening and they're stealing it. The Republican governor, Doug Ducey, was saying, no, no, this is what we do. There's nothing wrong with this. This is totally legitimate. And I think if it's Republican elected officials, they could kind of pop the bubble on this and calm things down. But for some of them, especially if it looks like Trump is going to lose big, then you start thinking about your own reputation, your own future. And it may not make sense to hit yourself to a conspiracy theory. The gist. You don't like Bill de Blasio? Let me tell you, I don't even like the mayor of New York's second biggest city, Yonkers. Mike Spano, F that guy. What about Mike Walsh of Syracuse, the third biggest city? Hey, him too. All these Mikes. What are you trying to be Bloomberg? We had a Mike. He was mayor, big city. You guys are frauds. Go home. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>